0: Welcome to Work and the Future, a podcast about tomorrow with your host, Linda Nazareth.
1: Well, hello, and thank you for joining us today. You know, the last few years, the workplace has gone through a lot. We've learned new ways of working. We've also had to learn new ways of managing, lots of managers are trying to learn new ways. Part of that is figuring out how much autonomy to give workers, some of whom may be in front of you and some of whom may be somewhere else. It's not just about remote work, though. It's about recognizing that everyone wants some control over their work life. And that can be a tricky thing for a manager to accept and to allow. Well, to talk about how much autonomy is appropriate at work, I'm joined on this episode by Dr. Julian Barling, and he's Professor of Organizational Behavior and Board and Chair of Leadership at the Smith School of Business at Queen's University. He's also written a book called Brave New Workplace, where he defines seven distinct characteristics that contribute to a productive, healthy, and safe workplace. Of the seven, though, he says that autonomy is often the one where leaders find it most difficult to achieve the right balance. Uh, It is a really interesting topic because this is something I've seen a lot of managers struggle with. You know, they uh, kind of want to hold on to control. So I found it really interesting to talk to Julian about this, about why autonomy is important and how leaders and organizations should go about figuring out how to best provide that. It's a conversation where you can learn a lot. So please stay with us to hear it. Well, how can leaders give workers autonomy at work? To talk about that, I'm joined by Dr. Julian Barling. He's professor of organizational behavior at the Smith School of Business at Queen's University. He's also author of the book, Brave New Workplace. Julian, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, a really interesting topic. I always like to start though by asking people, you know, about their own careers. It's a career kind of podcast. How did you end up doing what you're doing?
0: So so first, thanks for inviting me to uh, have this discussion about autonomy. Um, For for me to answer that question, I have to go back quite a far way. I um, grew up in apartheid South Africa and um, I was always intrigued about leadership. And here's what intrigued me. Um, On the one hand, um, you could see leaders who had such a devastatingly negative impact, the apartheid leaders of the era, Um, the Prime ministers, Forster, and so forth. And on the other hand, we had leaders who promised so so much good, people like Mandela, whom actually we were not even allowed to see pictures of because they were so afraid of him. So I was always intrigued by leadership. Um, Then in the early 90s, um, once I got to the Smith School of Business, um, I was teaching a class on leadership, and a student, Tom Weber, asked me to um, do some leadership training in his organization. We converted it into a study. Um, We could show that we could teach leadership. And for the last three decades, um, I've been working in this space, leadership, autonomy, um, health, and so forth.
1: Interesting. Interesting uh, way that you came to it, the interest in it. You know, when we say leadership, uh, and this is something I've learned on the podcast, that so many people think of North American, maybe military-style leadership, I'm going to tell you what to do. But autonomy is part of this, right? Right. How would you define autonomy as as part of this leadership issue?
0: So so it's it's intriguing. Um, If you read the literature on autonomy, um, there are probably as many definitions as there are people who discuss it. So I think that um, if we look at all of this, I think that there are two central features that can guide us in understanding what it is and then guide leaders in what is required of them. Um, The first aspect, I think, is we're not talking about an all or none issue. We're not talking about sort of giving the shop away or retaining it all yourself. I think central to most definitions about successful, if you will, autonomy is we're talking about just granting additional control. So however much people may have right now, it's about giving them a little bit more. And I think what's um, important as well is that you can actually give people too much autonomy. Um, if you give people too much autonomy, um, the, the the additional responsibility can become overwhelming and backfire. So I think the two essential elements is are um, it's just granting a little bit more than people have now, and leaders need, can, should feel reassured. E- employees are not asking for total autonomy.
1: Okay, let's let's talk about this because workers right now have a lot of things they don't like, right? Uh, Work styles coming out of the pandemic, we've got new issues about how people feel about organizations. What are the things that are important to them when we talk about autonomy?
0: Um, so um, autonomy has always been important. It's not as if autonomy has sort of just become important because of the because of the pandemic. but what's happened is that a particular aspect of of, of autonomy has um, really reared its head uh, during, because of the the pandemic and and afterwards. Um, And and it's what we might call locational autonomy um, or locational flexibility. Um, And what I mean by that is that what we have now are possibly two groups of people. We have more and more people who are working from home and wishing they could do more work from work. And more and more people who are working from work and wish they could do more work from home. And if you look at the common factor um, involved in both of those two phenomena, it's we have more people feeling that they've lost a little bit of control um, over something that's now more important, and that is where they work. I think it's really important. I think this is a major issue facing organizations. Um, The successful organizations of the future, I think, are going to be the ones that navigate this in a nuanced way.
1: Navigating in a nuanced way is difficult, right? It's a big ask of organizations. I think to an extent they don't even understand what the problem is. Um, What's the cost to them when they don't do this?
0: Um, I think the cost to them when they don't do this is uh, that they're alienating um, large groups of people. Um, What they're primarily doing is is, is typically making a mistake on one side. It's not as if um, people are being granted too much flexibility. I think it's that organisations are um, somewhat afraid. Um, what happens if we do have large groups of people working from home um, and we can't see them? Can we trust them? And the costs start to be. We we as organisations tend to say, okay, we'll allow this, um, but we need to do things such as electronically monitor employees. Um, we know from good research that electronic monitoring has uh, just no benefits. It has no positive effects. If anything, it has negative effects. And what we're seeing are more attempts to introduce um, more electronic monitoring, more subtle electronic monitoring. So the the problem moving forward is we may resort to uh, not just ineffective but counterproductive technologies um, because we feel we cannot trust what we cannot see.
1: Okay, so do you have any examples of this? I mean, when you say electronic monitoring, I mean, I'm still kind of shocked that companies do that. It doesn't seem like something you do with adults. Um, but what are good examples of where you give people autonomy, but you still have control? Um,
0: so, uh, you know, the, the, the first way I think, and uh, um, it seems really simple, but it seems hard for, for leaders to do, and the reason it seems hard is because people don't like giving away control. People don't like feeling that they're losing control that they once had. Um, I think the, the, the first step is to engage in a discussion with your people and ask them, um, what is it that they want? Um, after all, it's not, it's giving, um, control in areas in which people didn't want more control. Um, it's just going to be a waste of resources, energy, and so forth. So I think we need to be closely attuned. After all, what we want to do is to, to, um, maximize the notion of what are the smallest things we can do for employees that are going to have the greatest impacts. And I think the first thing is we need to listen more. Um, employees are willing to tell us if we're willing to ask.
1: And that's, uh, again, another big ask because companies aren't that big on listening, right? You have plans, you have quarterly results, you have, you know, short-term things. How do you effectively give workers voice?
0: Um, I think that what we need to help organizations understand, and I would say as academics that perhaps we haven't been um, as effective as we should have been, is we have, we need to get the message across that giving autonomy is not a matter of, let's call it employee philanthropy or just being kind or nice or whatever. It's essential to getting people to work to their, uh, to, to help people want to make their organisations thrive. So if we want employees to go beyond just what their contracts demand, we have to put them in that sort of mental space where they want to do amazing things. Um, we can't excel, let's say, doing other people's work. We're really only going to excel when we're doing what we regard as our work. And if we have autonomy, we're going to feel it's our work. It's not a, met- we need to help organizations appreciate this is not a matter of being kind. This is um, just a crucial way of motivating people. We've known this for the longest time, but I think the, the more nuanced aspects about location and so forth, are now coming to the fore.
1: I don't like generalizations, but is this partly age-related? Are younger managers better at this or is this everybody?
0: Um, So I I also don't like generalizing and um, the cool part is that um, generalizations in this area just don't work. It's not as if young people want autonomy and old people don't want autonomy. Um, I haven't seen any data they would support the notion that there's a, um, an age-related effect um, in all of this.
1: But so, what about leaders? But are there leaders who are better? Whether it's by age or by anything else, or is it an industry where they're better at this?
0: Um, so I don't think research has even begun to focus at the sort of industry level. Um, what are the, the factors that might help some leaders do this a bit better than others? Certainly. Um, I think there's the, the notion that um, leaders who are more secure in and of themselves, leaders who feel strong internally, are more likely to feel that they can give away some control. Yeah. Leaders who feel internally insecure are far more likely to do whatever they can to maintain every little last bit of control that they can. And the the I'm not sure if this is an irony, but um, when employees see leaders do that, um, they can appreciate it comes from insecurity.
1: And that's interesting. We see that a lot, right? And like, not just in, at work, insecure people act in ways that aren't always the most productive, right?
0: Yes, certainly. And I, and I think it goes beyond organizations. Um, there's some really good research that shows this exactly the same principle extends to teaching, to parenting. Um, if we just take parenting, helicopter parenting, and um, an important uh, point would be: if you look at helicopter parenting, um, these are people who who try and maintain control. It's not because they don't care; it's because they do care. It's they, and it's the same with leaders. It's not that they don't care; they do care, but it's they care plus um, that they may feel more insecure, and that's what leads them to to feel a reluctance or a fear to to let go. And if I can just add not let go completely.
1: Okay, so let's say you're an organization and you realize that your workers aren't giving you everything they could because they don't have enough autonomy, right? And there's maybe some costs. I mean, there's corporate examples where mistakes are made because workers aren't listened to. And, and you're sincere. You want to change your organization. What are the things you need to communicate to your leaders and to communicate to workers? Um.
0: So... <coughs> I think the first thing would be to uh, communicate to leaders. Um, Sorry, to communicate to organisations. I think what we need to to help organisations understand is they need to support their leaders in the transition to more autonomy for employees. They need to help their leaders with um, more leadership development. They need to help their leaders with... um, if it doesn't work out, if there are bumps along the road, they will support their leaders um, because people have to get employees have to get used to having autonomy. Um, a second point, and I try and make this clear in um, in uh, Brave New Workplace and in the leadership um, development programs we run at the Smith School of Business, is autonomy is not a standalone best practice. Um, about the worst thing you could do as an organization is grant people autonomy without the training. Upfront to be able to use the autonomy. In fact, in some areas, that may be the most dangerous thing you ever do as an organization. So organizations need to to make this part of a grander scheme rather than just a single best practice.
1: So you think that you, we need more formal leadership training to help people, or? Um,
0: yes, I do. I think we need to help leaders change their minds as to um, what is the best um, of leadership. And I think that leaders overthink uh, what is the best of leadership, thinking that getting extraordinary results, particularly in really difficult times as we've had in the last several years, um, surely we need to do extraordinary things in order to get these wonderful outcomes. And I think that what I've learned uh, since doing all this research at the Smith School and so forth is that the opposite is true. Actually, it's the smallest things we can do for people that will have these wonderful outcomes. It gets to the question of why does granting autonomy um, have all of these effects on productivity, on health, on safety, and so forth? It's because when we grant people autonomy, we're signaling to them that we trust their competence and we trust their integrity. And when people feel that they're trusted, um, they're willing to go out and try and do wonderful things and so forth. Think about the opposite. When we, the opposite of autonomy, the extreme opposite of autonomy would probably be micromanagement.
1: Mm-hmm. There's a lot of that.
0: There's a lot of that. In, in fact, if I can tell a small, a quick small story, um, we do lots of leadership development um, initiatives through our um, executive program at the school. Um, when I do these, and we do, again, I've done this with, probably thousands of people over the last 30 years, a question I invariably ask is, tell me about the worst leaders you've ever had. And literally every single time, people just cannot stop themselves. They just blurt out over-control or micromanagement. Um, they blurt that out before anything else. So it really has a very negative effect on them. And then you get into, what is the why is it so bad? It's because people feel they're not trusted. Um, importantly, um, when they feel they're not trusted, um, w- what we don't appreciate as organizations is employees are going to try and get back at the organization, and by that I mean at their leaders, and often they do it in an invisible way. We can't immediately see what they're doing, but they, they don't just sit back and take it. So we really need to help leaders appreciate that just granting people little bits of autonomy that are important to them can have very meaningful, very meaningful effects moving forward
1: interesting you know when you said worse later I kind of uh, flashback to some uh, one I worked with who was really not very good at her job and you're completely right some, it was somebody well over her head who knew she didn't have the respect of the people around her and I, uh, I can see the behavior are talking about really clearly there um, you know we talked about this a lot more but maybe we should end it there because it's kind of a hopeful note we're changing so much about the future of work maybe we'll change this as well Julian thank you so much for joining me
0: Thank you for having me on your program.
1: Dr. Julian Barling is Professor of Organizational Behaviour at the Smith School of Business at Queen's University. He's also the author of the book, Brave New Workplace. Well, that's it for today. If you'd like to know more about Julian and his work, please take a look at our show notes. You'll find some links there. If you want to connect with me, I'm on Twitter at RelentlessEco. Now, if you did like this conversation about the future of work, Please take a moment and leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. It'll really help people to find us. It'll help us to keep these discussions going. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks as always to Stopley Audio for audio production.
0: To learn more about work and the future and to see show notes, go to theworkandthefuturepodcast.com. You can also contact us at comments at theworkandthefuturepodcast.com. The Work in the Future podcast with Linda Nazareth is a relentless economics production.